It's Monday, May 28th, Memorial Day, and this is The Daily Dive. I want to start by saying thank you to all the service members of the military who fight to protect us and give us the freedoms we cherish so much. Today, on Memorial Day, we specifically remember those that gave the ultimate sacrifice in service of their country. Telling the stories of those that have given their lives for us is one of the best ways to honor them and keep their memory alive. Today, we will speak to National Guard Officer Robert Perry, and he will share the story of one of his friends, Corporal Glenn J. Watkins, who was killed on April 5th, 2005, by an IED during Operation Iraqi Freedom. But first, we'll get a quick update from Reuters political reporter Ginger Gibson for the latest on the ongoing negotiations to hold a North Korean denuclearization summit. A team from the U.S. has entered into North Korea to continue preparations for the meeting between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It appears that there was an investigation not of the campaign, but of certain individuals who have a history that we should be suspicious of that predate the presidential campaign of 2015-2016. I have seen no evidence that there that those people were part of an investigation on the campaign. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. It seems that the North Korean summit might be back on. President Trump's move to cancel last week seemed to give everybody the kick in the pants that it needed to make this happen all over again. And now we uh, are finding out that a team of U.S. officials have crossed into North Korea to keep preparing for the talks. What else do we know about that? We know that what's known as the advance advance team, the team that sort of goes first to work out any logistic questions, has uh, continued with the setup process. They were in Singapore. They've now gone into North Korea to consider continue these talks. But I wouldn't take that as a guarantee that this meeting is still going to happen. There's still a lot of pieces that have to come together. Um, and until the two leaders are sitting down at a table with one another, I would continue to operate under the assumption that a lot could still keep it from happening. This is still very much in the logistical phase. I mean, are they even thinking about the content of these meetings. I'm sure they're preparing for it, but it still seems like we're trying to figure out if we're really actually going to get there. There's a lot of substance that has to be hammered out. You're right. These sort of logistical, uh, what this advanced, these all procedures that, you know, where do we put the flag? What shape of the table? Uh, what side of the room do we put the cameras? Uh, that kind of stuff is easy. And that's the kind of stuff that we see continuing to be worked on. Um, we do understand that behind the scenes, there are still high level talks going on between the two countries to try to work out um, the real stumbling blocks of, of what are they going to agree to? Uh, what are they going to be um, um, coming to terms on and what has to still be done before that could even happen? Kim Jong-un met with the president of South Korea also. And after that meeting, uh, the president of South Korea said that, you know, what's really unclear for Chairman Kim is that not his willingness for denuclearization, but how much he can trust the U.S. to guarantee his safety and, and, and his you know, the security of his regime, you know, kind of goes back to that Libya model again. They don't want to give everything up and then just be left with nothing and, and kind of get screwed in the whole deal. That's right. We understand from those who watch North Korea and experts in the country, um, not only is there a question of whether or not he has these weapons to protect himself, he thinks, from foreign invaders, but also from threats within his own country. Um, there was a lot of talk about 
whether or not if he left for a meeting with the U.S., if he could be subject to a coup. Um, And that's not just a wild what if. That's a real possibility that he lives with. Um, And we know that that's part of the reason that they were developing these weapons is to make it harder for another country to come in and assist in executing a coup. Um, And that's a real open question left about just how safe is he within his own country. That still remains the whole question is not that necessarily that he wants to give them up. He's indicated that he does even to the South Korean president, but it's all about how fast he's going to give up these weapons. He wants to do something really gradual, obviously get a bunch of sanctions relief uh, in, in the meantime, but it's really all about how fast he's going to give this stuff up. And how secure the United States and South Korea going to be that he actually did give them up. Um, there's questions remaining about whether or not they were the level of scrutiny to know just how much he has um, to determine just how much he would be destroying or getting rid of. And whether or not he can continue to develop uh, weapons secretly in another location. Um, so there's a lot of open questions left that are, that are going to have to be negotiated. Yeah, and the skepticism remains. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio was hitting the uh, Sunday talk shows over the weekend, and he said, I, I don't really think he wants to denuclearize. I, 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 he has no confidence that North Korea is going to give those up. A lot of people still very skeptical about the whole thing. Another thing also going on in, in the president's circle is this uh, ongoing thing of Spygate. And uh, again, Marco Rubio making the rounds, just saying there's no evidence that the FBI spied on the Trump campaign. They were looking into specific people that might have had dealings, uh, a history of links to Russia. That's right. We see uh, sort of the next chapter, as we talked about, the spy novel that's un, un, uh, unfolding in front of our eyes in the Trump administration. And now we've got uh, who is generally a Trump ally, a Republican, saying he just doesn't believe this assertion from Trump that he was spied on, that he thinks uh, based on the intelligence that he has seen uh, in his conversations with FBI officials, that what happened was was there were some folks in Trump's orbit who had ties to Russia, and that caused a lot of alarm for the FBI. And they were monitoring those folks, trying to make sure that they weren't trying to infiltrate Trump's campaign in a way that was inappropriate. And now the president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, is trying to hold this over the whole thing, saying President Trump's not going to meet with Robert Mueller Unless we get all this information about this informant and, and what's going on. He just doesn't want the president to get caught up in, you know, a lie or something like that if, uh, if Robert Mueller is interviewing him. That's the biggest concern that we see from Giuliani uh, when he talks about this interview is that he thinks that Mueller could try to set a trap um, for the president, that he could uh, trick him into committing perjury by not telling him something. It it seems a little confusing uh, to those of us on the outside, this notion that, well, if you tell the truth, how can someone trick you into lying? Um, And that seems to be something that we're hearing from the president's critics. Um, and, and you can look at Democrat Adam Schiff also on, on the Sunday morning talk show saying that he thought that this argument that the president was making about an informant or a spy in the FBI was just propaganda um, and just an effort to try to obscure what was really going on and to convince people that there was some wrongdoing when there, when there really wasn't. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A lot of soldiers that are there who are much younger than I, uh, who died 
uh, over a decade ago when they were they were young kids uh, doing absolutely what they loved and they wouldn't have picked anything else to be doing. It's a very poignant reminder of of what all of this is to us and uh, really what this this weekend means and the the real the true meaning of Memorial Day. Joining us now is Robert Perry. He's a National Guard officer. He served in Kuwait, Iraq, and Afghanistan. It's Memorial Day. It's a day we take to honor those that have served in the military and that have died in service. First off, I want to say thank you for your service uh, and thank everything you. that you do for our country. We honor those the best when we remember somebody, when we keep talking them, keeping them top of mind. So we wanted to bring you in. We wanted to talk to, about uh, somebody that you knew, somebody that died in service, Corporal Glenn Watkins. What can you tell us about him? Before I was a commissioned officer, I, I was enlisted and... Um, Glenn was in my squad uh, when I was an enlisted rifleman in ALF Company, 184 Infantry in California, Army National Guard. And uh, we deployed to Kuwait together in 2001, right after 9-11. He went off to the uh, state of Washington, had got divorced, and kind of went on with his life and joined the National Guard up there. And uh, he, w- he was a really interesting guy. He was, uh, he was Jewish, but he liked Christian rock music. And uh, he was a short, tough, wiry little uh, 82nd Airborne paratrooper in his active duty time. He'd also been in the Navy, as I recall. He was one of these guys who uh, didn't want to be in charge, didn't want to be the get all the credit. He was perfectly happy sitting in the dirt doing what an infantryman does um, after 20 years. I mean, he was he was uh, 40-something when uh, when this happened. He was 42. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the LA Times, from time to time, they'll, they'll remember veterans, and they profiled him briefly in one of their pieces, and, and, you know, other servicemen and women chimed in, and, you know, just to remember him as well. And somebody specifically said what you were just saying right now, that he never served beyond corporal because he didn't want to. He was happy being down in the trenches with the guys. Yeah. That, that's exactly who he was. He just loved being a soldier and he loved the camaraderie and he loved being with other soldiers. And I mean, that really kind of goes to what, the heart of what happened on April 5th. We, we arrived in country in uh, early February. Watkins was with the 161st Infantry from the uh, Washington National Guard. And uh, they had roughly the same neck of the woods as we did in Baghdad. And uh, when he found out we were coming from some some of the guys that he was still in touch with, he, uh, he said, Hey, you know, I'll, I'll hold over. I'll, I'll do a second tour with you guys. I had moved out of Alpha company. I'd got commissioned by this time and I was, I was serving another unit. And uh, by then I was, uh, in the battalion headquarters. And, uh, one day I'm in the dining facility on our fob and I'm like, wow, that looks like Watkins. Hey, that is Watkins. <laughs> We chatted for a minute, and then a couple of weeks later, I saw him again, and I'm like, you know, we ought to have lunch, catch up. He says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll meet you at the battalion headquarters tomorrow for lunch. That next day was April 5th, and um, 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm walking out of the dining facility, going to the battalion headquarters, getting started my day, and there was a huge blast. It darn near knocked me on my feet, and I was uh, two miles away, and uh, looked to the north uh northeast and there was this big mushroom cloud coming up i ran to the talk and like somebody just got blasted they're like yeah we got casualties how long and, did, how uh, long did it take you to find out that it was uh corporal Watkins? well that was the thing is that you know 
um, casualties are, are part of our business, right? So if there's nothing decisive that needs to be done, you, you go about your business. So I, I went to a meeting and, um, you know, we were tense. We knew that we had wounded, but there wasn't anything for us to be doing. So we went about our part of the mission. And then uh, battalion commander was in the meeting and then the uh, operations NCO came into the meeting about five minutes into it. And he says, sir, we have a KIA. And uh, the air just went out of the room. It was our first first serious incident, our first KIA. We'd had a guy wounded a few weeks earlier, but um, he had to be evacuated, but it wasn't awful. Um, and uh, it was uh, it was shocking. Um, so the battalion commander left the room and he came back and uh, he was a our, our BC was a bit of a character. He was a uh, he was a, something of a poet and a man of letters. And he uh, came into the room and he said, "Gentlemen, uh, Corporal Glenn Watkins gave his life for our country a few minutes ago." Um, and that just I was devastated. Uh, you know, when I say devastated, I mean like a piece of me was ripped out didn't cry, didn't, you know, get emotional on the outside, but it was really real to me. When when we were at <clears throat> Fort Bliss getting ready to deploy, the battalion commander had, he'd had a formation and he said, uh, you know, the, the, the numbers coming out of Iraq right now are, you know, one in, uh, I think it was 30 of you aren't going to come back. And, uh, there ended up being thousands of deaths from Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yeah. And, you know, he said, look around your platoon and figure out which one of you is it going to be and is it going to be you? And um, I looked to my left and my right and I was like, uh, yeah, I just can't imagine it being any of us. Lo and behold, uh, by the end of our deployment, uh, our, our, our battalion got pretty beat up towards the end of our deployment. We, uh, we lost uh, 13 guys total out of the out of the battalion 18 out of the task force when these things um, happen obviously like you said it you know it takes the wind out of your sails and, and and you feel like a piece of you is lost but does it strengthen you overall you I mean, you take this with you and, and fight harder and and for what you believe in it's not that transactional it's um it's it's more of um not wanting those guys to have been killed in vain. Um, you know, when we left Iraq and just walked away, clearly there were a lot of national priorities and, and strategic decisions, part and parcel of that. And I don't question those. They're not my pay grade, but um, it was very hard to think of our area of South Baghdad and see it, you know, left. Um, to uh, a, a very shaky government and not support it and realize that you know, all that loss, all that emotion, all those kids without dads, it's all for, all for naught. Um, it's uh, pretty heartbreaking. Remembering people, remembering those that have fallen is one of the best things that you can do just to continue honoring them. When you get free time on days like this, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, what do you like to do? What do you, how do you, practice these days 
Um, well, uh, you know, Memorial Day and Veterans Day are very different things. Memorial Day is not for me, and it's not for guys currently in uniform. It's not for veterans. I mean, Memorial Day, to me, Memorial Day is for the families. Memorial Day is for the moms and dads and wives and kids that um, left someone over there. Um, and it's for me to go honor them. Um, I uh, I usually go to a local memorial ceremony i've been invited to speak at a couple of them and i've done that a few times but um for me it's it's a sort of a big moment of silence um i uh you know i've i've i said that you know it's our it's our burden and our honor to remember um you know we we lost some guys later in the deployment um and I, I wasn't there when they when they died, but I knew both of them. I deployed with both of them before, like I had with Glenn. And um, I, um, I'll never forget that night because the radio traffic was chaotic, and um, they were firing what we call illumination rounds, basically big flares in the sky to keep the uh, keep the area lit up so they could evacuate the dead and the wounded and recover the scene and. Um, I just, I, every time I see fireworks, I am reminded of that night, that moment. And as much as I would like to um, erase that from my memory and go on and not have to think about the thing those guys went through that night, um, I, I would dishonor them if I did that. That would that'd be a very selfish thing for me to do because um, as a citizen, as an American, if we're going to send young men and women off to fight our wars, the sanitized version of combat that we have on TV and movies and whatnot needs to needs to be put in the context of mornings like April fifth, two thousand five, and nights like that one, um, so that we realize that we are sending people off to do do very difficult, unpleasant things at great risk to themselves, and we better be damn sure we're getting it right if we're going to do that. Well, Robert, I, I can't say this enough. Thank you for your service. Thank you for every everything you've been through you know, on behalf of this country and for and for all of us. Robert Perry, National Guard officer, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>